We were talking about this last night. Uh, we had uh, one of the deacons from Catalina Foothills over for dinner. He asked what I was teaching in, and I started to say, John, and Amy made some comment about how long this will take. <coughs> and I said, honey, we've gotten through chapter one. That's the tough part. Now it's going to go a lot faster. So we got a whole 11 verses today. Say hello. Woo, yeah. Yes, we're going we're gonna to make some progress now. All right. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of our God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, you indeed have given us your word that we might know that there is joy in your presence, that we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy we seek in this world. So to have that joy, it is vital that we understand and believe your word. We need your spirit to illuminate this word for us so that we can understand it. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds so that we would believe and treasure what your word says. So fill us with this lasting joy this morning in accordance with your word and your purpose. We ask this in the name of Jesus who died for your joy and ours. Amen. <clears throat> weddings. Most of the time, weddings are fun, are they not? There's been a few weddings I've been to that I did not have much fun. That had more to do with me than with anything having to do with the wedding. You know, it was when you're single for a long time, sometimes weddings can be a difficult sort of experience. I have not really experienced any... Um, of the wild and crazy weddings that go wrong that you sometimes hear about. About as, as bad as it got once was a, a wedding I was in years and years ago. And uh, the, the father of the bride came, was walking his daughter down the aisle. And then you noticed that like his tie was sort of askew. His pants were a little bit off. And I won't do this because his, his fly was down and his shirt was sticking out. <laughs> Evidently, he'd already started the party. 
And some of us were just feeling so bad for her in that moment. And so, you know, when things go bad at a wedding, you really feel bad for somebody. This is a wedding where something goes bad, but no one ends up feeling bad for anybody. It actually turns out in a very positive and good place. The big idea this morning is that Jesus came to change sinners, and we see that in the midst of this wedding service and ceremony. Let's start with the reality, the the idea that Jesus' miracle was a sign for us to believe. In a sense, we have to look at the end of this passage to understand the rest of the passage. This is really a very unlikely setting uh, for Jesus' first miracle here, a wedding in Cana. Tim Keller talks about uh, a book that Reynolds Price writes about the Gospels. And uh, if you've never heard his name, which I had never heard his name, uh, he is an English professor at Duke. And so he, he writes, oddly enough, that he believes that John's account is a true account, precisely because it seems so incredibly unspectacular. He notes that in the uh, biographies of other great men, usually their first great coming out act is a spectacular sort of thing. Not you know, saving face for a bridegroom at a wedding. That seems very sort of unspectacular, especially since almost no one knew about it. You know, when you think about, you know, who knew about it? The disciples knew about it, Mary knew about it, the servants knew about it. The, the, all of the rest of the people as well never knew what happened until John wrote about it. And so from his perspective, this, this very unspectacular, unassuming sort of miracle is exactly has to be true, because why would he record it otherwise? It doesn't make Jesus look spectacularly good, in other words. This indeed was a miracle, and as we uh, think about what a miracle is, I find it helpful to think about the Westminster Confession. It says how God works, and uh, one of the ways is that God works um, with, without, against, and above means. And so in a miracle, essentially God is working without means, and he is working above any means that might actually be present. So it's one of those two things is how I understand a miracle to be. See, the Westminster Confession of Faith can be helpful, ladies and gentlemen. It really is. (coughs) And so uh, Jesus is about to do something. There's going to be some means there, but he's going to do something that goes far beyond the means that are present in order to perform this miracle. It is an unexpected miracle. No one thought that this would happen. And it was, as I mentioned, a largely unnoticed miracle. This intervention is sought by his mother. And what's interesting about this text is that John never uses her name. She has repeatedly just said, the mother of Jesus. His mother. He knows her name. If we go to the end of this gospel... Her care is entrusted into him, his care. He's, you know, and Jesus will say again, uh, woman, this is your son. Okay? And so it's just odd that, that her name is never given. In a sense, you kind of wonder if it's almost like what Mike has been talking about in Egypt, where the names are only given of the significant people. 
And so perhaps, remember, it's turning our gaze, not that we focus on Mary, but that we focus on Jesus. His name is given. He is the significant one in this whole story, not her. She plays a role, but it's not the main role, the important role. In an honor society, unlike ours, this problem of running out of wine would actually be a big problem. We, I don't know if we'd think about it too much, <clears throat> but it was a grave dishonor. Now, our weddings, you know, uh, there's going to be a wedding coming up next month. And if you, if you go to that wedding, uh, the bride's parents in our culture provide for the feast. They're probably uh, wishing that it wasn't them because in this culture, the groom's family provided for the feast. So Marty and Judy would be going, yeah. Okay? <clears throat> we get to save some money. All right? And especially when you consider it wasn't just like a few-hour reception. For them, the reception would go on for days. Yeah, hard to conceive of that. I never went on one of those big spring break extravaganzas, but it would kind of be like that almost. Maybe not as raucous, I hope, but, but still, you know, lots of food, lots of wine, lots of singing, lots of dancing, lots of fun going on and these things. And so it would be a grave dishonor because it points to, if you run out of the wine or the food, it points to the fact that either you didn't plan well, or that you're poor, or worse, you're cheap. Okay, so running out before the party is done was sort of seen as a major social faux pas, one that would be remembered for probably decades. You know, next time one of your kids gets married, they're going, oh, great, one of those weddings. Let's make sure it's a small gift, okay, because it actually could not just be an occasion for dishonor, but also an occasion for a lawsuit. Because if someone gives a lavish gift and you provide a rather meaningless small party, some people would actually say, you could be sued for that, that you didn't deliver what you were supposed to deliver uh, within, within the context of their culture. So keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, anyway. So this is, this, is a, this is a problem greater than we think it is. Okay, in our culture, it's not as big of a deal as it was in that time and in that place. Okay? Mary here is wanting to protect the groom and his family from grave dishonor. What's interesting to me, though, is, is that, well, one, she cares about the groom and his family. But secondly, that the servants seem all too willing to obey her. She simply says, do whatever he tells you to do, and they do it. This leads me to, to, think, to wonder and think, and as I sat in my office, I said to myself, is she somehow a part of the extended family of the bridegroom? Don't know, but it seems to uh, make sense to me, you know, in light of what she is doing and the response. I mean, why would they listen to this strange lady unless she was an important part of that family, had some connection to that family? It's probably not one of Jesus' brothers because it does mention here in the text that she was invited and that he was invited. 
Usually you don't have to invite your mom, right? <clears throat> okay, so if you do, that's, that means it's bigger problems than running out of wine. <clears throat> and what we see here is that Jesus exercises his power as creator for the very first of his signs. And that's an important thing. It's, it's not just a miracle, it's also a sign. And signs, as we know, point to something. Our little exit sign, as we've talked about before, in terms of uh, circumcision and baptism, you know, the, the, the exit sign is not the exit, but it points us to the exit. So signs tell us about something else. They point to something else. If you're driving on the road and you, 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 know, you see the sign, you know what road you're on and you know what's up ahead, what you're coming to. And so <clears throat> if you're driving to, say, Boston, and you see a sign that says Phoenix, three miles, you know you're in, in for a really long ride. And maybe about you're going in the wrong direction. Okay? Signs point us to something else. And so this miracle, it's not about the miracle itself. It's about what the miracle says, what the miracle points to. And at the end of this, it's kind of, John kind of rolls this out that <clears throat> it also manifested his glory. The sign reveals something about the glory of Jesus. Okay? By pointing to something about him. And the result of this sign according to John, was that his disciples believed in him. Okay, now, some of them, I mean, they already believed something about him, and so the idea is not that they came to saving faith here on the basis of the sign, but they at least grew in their faith. They entrusted more of themselves to this Jesus as, as once again, Jesus reveals more about himself to them. And so they're believing what this sign is saying about this man, Jesus, that they have begun to follow as their rabbi. It shows that he is indeed trustworthy in some way, shape, or form. And John, of course, records these signs, starting with this one, so that we, too, will entrust ourselves to Christ. Now, <clears throat> I got home from our session meeting very late Tuesday night. And I can never just, you know, after a drive, just kind of go upstairs and go to bed. I don't know. I'm not wired that way. So here I am with the TV on, flicking channels. Oh, look. It's the last temptation of Christ. <laughs> I decided to watch a little bit of it. And I did not watch much of it. It was the very beginning. And what was there in the very beginning is not a picture that would draw anyone to this portrayal of Jesus. Because this portrayal of Jesus seems crazy. He hears voices in his head, and he's afraid that about God's love. This is a very different picture of Jesus. Okay, This is not the picture of a Jesus that's crazy and hears voices. This is a picture of Jesus who's not afraid, but is very certain of who he is and moves boldly in his world. This is a Jesus that we can entrust ourselves to. Nicholas Konstantinakis' Jesus is not the one you want to avoid. So, as I said, didn't watch much of that movie. Sleep was more important than that. <clears throat> so the miracle at Cana is a sign. What does it point us to so that we will believe in Christ? Let's start off with this. Jesus came to cleanse sinners of sin's pollution. This sign indicates that Jesus came to cleanse sinners of sin's 
pollution. The miracle itself gives us a clue of, into the meaning of this, and we'll get there in a moment, because but, the, the dialogue does too. There's something about the dialogue that goes on here that gives us a little bit of insight as to what's kind of going on. And it starts with Mary, okay, remember, she just mentioned as the mother of Jesus, says to Jesus, essentially, literally, no wine. Big problem. No wine. But Jesus' answer is rather strange. Because uh, he says, woman... And that in itself is strange. Not mom, not Mary. Woman, not as, the, as some translations put it, dear woman. <laughs> Trying to soften that a little bit. Woman, what do I have to do with you? My, t- my hour has not come. And so it, it seems like, it's, it's weird, it's almost like Mary is talking about one thing and Jesus is talking about something else. There's, there seems to be a lack of connection between what's going on in this conversation. It's a little confusing. As I mentioned earlier, this was not the only time Jesus would, would speak of, to her and say, woman, as opposed to mom or Mary. Uh, John 19, he says, woman, behold your son. Okay. What's going on here? Why would he see this? I think it has to do with the fact that the one to whom she speaks has now been anointed as the Messiah. He has begun his earthly ministry, and so she she no longer can speak to him as a mother to her son, but she now speaks to him as a person to her Lord. Something significant has changed in the relationship that she needs to know about. I have begun my earthly ministry. I'm no longer answerable to you. I am answerable to my Father in heaven. This is sort of a, it is a sort of blunt but not mean way of expressing this. When in Luke 14, John says this thing that many people stumble over. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we read that and we struggle with that. You know, what do you mean? Uh, you know, and of course, in this context, it means to love less. It doesn't mean that I should actively hate my wife. Okay? That I'm not a good disciple of Jesus unless I hate Amy. That's not what this is saying but that I must love Christ more than I love my wife, Amy. And I must love Christ more than I love my children. I must love Christ more than I love all of you. Jesus did this. He does not place this demand upon his disciples and not live it himself. His own earthly mother, he loved less than his heavenly father. His own earthly brothers and sisters, he loved less than he loved his heavenly Father. And so he must serve him before he serves her. That's what's going on here, I believe. He also says that my hour has not come yet. Sort of cryptic at this point in John's Gospel. But if we fast forward, we find this a number of times, including John 7, verse 30, uh, chapter 8, verse 20, 
chapter 12, verse 23, and there are some other places. In all of those places, the hour refers to the hour of his death, the time of his death. And that really seems to, wait a minute, what does his death have to do with the fact that there's no wine? Do you, do you feel a disconnect? Some sense of dissonance in your brains? You're supposed to. That's okay. At least initially. Hopefully that dissonance will be relieved. This sign will point us to the answer to this in terms of what it accomplishes. Because the sign is that he tells them, and this is the interesting part. Why do they listen to him? He says, fill these six ceremonial stone jars with water. Now, you know, think about that. We're out of wine, and this guy wants us to fill the jars, the ceremonial jars, with water. What does one have to do with the other? Of course, the ceremonial jars, uh, you know, 20, 30 gallons, they're big. Uh, they're stone uh, as opposed to being made of uh, a clay, you know, kind of a pottery uh, a jar because they're more prone to take, to kind of um, take some impurities within them and release them when you put new water in there. So this is more pure. And the purpose was uh, for the washing, the ceremonial washings. You've been out in the world, you've been polluted from the world, and now you need, before you partake of this feast, you need to kind of wash. Okay, so this was for the ceremonial washings, um, similar to what we find in Leviticus. And it points to the reality that as sinners, we're dirty. It's not about physical dirt. It's not about bacteria. It's about the heart. That when we sin, we get morally unclean. Our hearts become filthy. And so there's guilt. There's also pollution. And so when we sin, we become guilty of sin, but we also become polluted, dirty. And so these ceremonial uh, jars and the the washings would, would portray, symbolize the reality that sin makes us dirty or filthy, and we need to be made clean. That's why they're there. So... They fill these to the brim, it says, and they still don't know what's going on. Because then Jesus says, uh, draw some and take it to the master of the feast. And at some point, well, when he drinks it, they realize, because he doesn't go, why are you bringing me a ladle full of water? (laughs) He goes, good wine! The water became wine. This is, these, these things are no longer fit for service, so to speak, for the purification of one's hands. Some, Jesus has come <coughs> and changed their purpose. The water has now become wine. The purification is no longer needed And again, this connects with the death of Christ, 
when we think of the Lord's table, which we thankfully celebrate every week. What does the wine represent? His blood. His blood shed on the cross. And so it's not the water that's in the, that's in the ceremonial jug that cleanses our souls. In reality, it is, I think, through this sign, remember it's a sign, it is through the shed blood of Christ that our impurity as well as our guilt from sin is washed away, is cleansed, is removed. That is a large part of what's going on here. We cannot change ourselves, in other words. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Implied answer, no. Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You can't change, Jeremiah says. You're just like the leopard, you can't change your spots. You who do evil, you can't start to now suddenly become good unless someone changes you. We are unable to change ourselves, but this miracle and this sign indicate that Christ came to change us, to purify us. In fact, it is the only way in which we can become purified. Last night I walked into a wall. I don't know what I did to my two toes. They look pretty ugly right now. Well, they always looked ugly, but they look even uglier. They're more, they're more colorful right now. And I don't know if I've bruised them badly or broken them. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, Amy said, well, why don't you take this stuff? And I have no idea what the stuff is. It's some of this homeopathic medicine that she had for her elbow to get the blood out of the elbow or something like that. Anyway, I went down, and apparently there's more than one in the strange little bottle that it's in. And I took the wrong stuff. <laughs> I don't know what I took. I don't know what it's going to do to me. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened yet. But that's a mild sort of thing. There are times when we take the wrong medicine, it's not just a laugh. It can kill you. There's only one remedy for this problem of the pollution of our hearts. And that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else is going to work. And in fact, everything else will, in a sense, kill you, precisely because you, are, you will remain dead in your sins and your trespasses. Okay? We see from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says there that, if, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ or united to Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, or look, one of those good words here in the early part of John. Look, the new has come. And so when we're united to Christ, it is on the basis of his, his death on the cross, his shed blood for sinners, that we become a new creation, transformed similar to the way the water was changed to the wine. Is water wine? No. Is water like wine? In some ways, yes. Both are liquids, for instance. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure what water, I mean, wine has some water in it. There's, and of course, they would distill some of the, the wine, so it wasn't as strong. But there's some continuity there, and there's some continuity between the old man and the new man in the sense of um, while there is much that changes, you're still you. I think that's this, that's an aspect of this. It's not like you. It's not like I ceased to be Steve, but I became a different Steve. Okay, so this liquid remained a liquid. It became a different liquid, a better liquid. And so we in Christ remain the same and yet become a better version of ourselves the version of ourselves that we were always intended to be. And so we are changed. And having been purified by Christ, our response to God changes. The Heidelberg Catechism that we read, we read this morning talks a bit about that. We respond with gratitude that produces obedience. Gratitude because of the greatness of our salvation. We now, instead of fighting with God, we now submit to God and go in glad obedience. And so here as well, there should be a, an obedience that's kind of like these servants. I don't know why these servants did what Jesus said, but they did. And so the miracle is a sign that Jesus came to fulfill the, the ceremonial law to purify us. And if you're looking at your notes right now, you're probably going, oh no, we're in trouble. There's two more points to go. And you're wrong. There's only one. Okay, so feel better. Feel better. There's only one. Jesus additionally reveals himself as the bridegroom. Okay, as I mentioned before, it's the bridegroom's family that provides for this, this uh, days-long feast, you know, up to a week. Didn't you know, not all of them were a week. The really big weddings, the important weddings in town, I'm sure, would probably meet the full week. But, uh, you know, you don't want to make people impoverished by uh, throwing a wedding. So, again, Marty's glad. It's only a few hours. Right, Judy? You're glad. Only a few hours. Okay? Well, again, as I mentioned, they, they, bring, they draw some of the wine according to what Jesus says, and then they go and they, they give this to the master of the feast. And the master of feast does this. He compliments the bridegroom on providing superior wine. I mean, he doesn't know what's just happened sort of in the back room of this whole thing. Okay? <clears throat> so he just tastes this wine and goes, oh my goodness. And he finds the bridegroom and he says, you know what? Everybody else, uh, you know, brings out the good wine first. And then when everyone's feeling a little happy, and that's really what that word means, uh, has drunk freely, it means they, they got a little... A little thing going on there, people. Okay, um, they're a little little happy on the wine. It has made their hearts glad, and and so you know when when that happens, usually they bring out the bad wine because no one's paying attention. You know they're already like woo. He says, but you, you save the best for last, and so he's very excited and he praises the bridegroom for what he sees as. Um, it's like the other one was good. This is better. This has not gone from good to bad. This has gone from good to better. And so he's very excited and he praises him. But we know, as uh, I can't remember his name, uh, Harvey would say, the rest of the story. 
that it was not the plan of the bridegroom or the bridegroom's family. It was actually Jesus. Jesus, who really provided the wine, which points us to the time and when he, as the bridegroom, will supply the wine for the wedding supper of the Lamb that we heard about in Revelation 19. We also read from Isaiah 25, because that's talking about, I believe, the same event. Isaiah, in his mini apocalypse, talks about on this mountain there is going to be a feast, and it is a feast unlike any that they have had before. Because the words that flow over there, the, 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 the rich aged wine, you know, it's been getting really good wine. The, the rich marrow and the meat, this is prime cuts of beef we're talking about here. Okay, this is not coming over to my house and having hot dogs and uh, grape juice. Okay, this is good stuff. Okay? This feast is the same feast in Revelation 19. And part of the consistency between the talking about those two feasts is that the nations are invited. Even in, even in Isaiah 25, you'll notice all peoples will come to this feast. They're going to partake of the goodness and the generosity and kindness of God. And that's what we see in Revelation is that at the wedding supper, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language are going to come and be part of this wedding feast when Jesus takes his bride to himself, you know, reveals her to the rest of the world for who she really is. There's going to be a feast. And so this talks not just about the death of Christ, but this talks about the return of Christ and the abundance of of goodness that we will experience in that time. It's even pictured here. There's six of these of these things that 20 to 30 gallons a piece. So, you know, let's estimate 130 to 180 gallons of wine. That sounds abundant to me. That's either that's, that's one big party or one long party. I don't drink a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine, okay? So this this speaks of God's abundance, as well as the superior quality of what he provides here, you know, because the, the master of the feast is amazed at how good this is. And so Jesus is going to provide us with great blessings when all of this happens. The richness of God is revealed. Let's change gears just for a second. Can you recall anyone else who changed water into something else? You all look stunned. Ah, Moses! (laughs) Changed the Nile, the water of the Nile, into blood. And part of what is going on in John's Gospel is how Jesus is greater than all of these other people that they revered. Moses turned water into blood as a sign of a curse upon the people of Egypt. Jesus is turning water into wine 
as a sign of God's blessing. How much greater is Jesus than Moses? How much more do you want to align yourself with to Jesus than Moses? Okay, that's my little aside. Jesus came to bring great blessing to his people. And so, as Tim Keller notes, that whenever the Scripture reveals to us something about Jesus, it also reveals to ourselves something about us. Okay? <clears throat> the, the fact of purification points to the fact that we need to be purified, but also this, this reality of Jesus as the bridegroom indicates that we who believe, all who believe, relate to Jesus not simply as Lord, but on the basis of a permanent, intimate, covenant relationship. We are part of His bride. And so there's a sense in which the talk of Lord is perhaps... Well, it's appropriate if we understand it properly. Similarly as how, as it says in uh, 1 Peter 3, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Okay? That covenant relationship. But we also recognize the intimacy and the closeness of this relationship. That Jesus is for us, not against us. That Jesus delights in us, and we delight in him. I've done almost everything in the wedding, except being a bride. <clears throat> Never done that. Not ever going to do that. Okay? I mean, I've been, you know, sitting in the crowd, just kind of watching things. Uh, I've, I've been a groomsman. I've been a bestman. I've been the groom. <clears throat> and I've been the pastor. And what I love about being the pastor is watching the groom when she appears. And I, and I, and now I know both sides of this. I remember looking down the aisle and seeing Amy. She's beautiful. Gorgeous. All the hours <laughs> that a woman takes to look beautiful in that moment. And the, but the reality is not that we make ourselves beautiful, but Christ is going to make us beautiful. But he's, he's also going to say, beautiful. He's going to delight. And I've never been the bride. I've never walked down the aisle. But I'm sure when she sees that beaming face on the bridegroom, something in her heart leaps with joy to be delighted in. And the knowledge that we are delighted in should bring great delight to our hearts. It should buoy us. Yes, He loves me. Yes, it will be okay. It may not always be easy, but it will be okay. And so, we who believe as in our part of His bride, we're objects of His affection, we're objects of His delight, and He will take care of that which He loves with an everlasting, never-stopping love. It's good. So what does John want us to know about Jesus and ourselves so that we will continue to entrust ourselves to Christ as He manifests His glory? Well, we as great sinners are morally dirty and we need to be purified. The ceremonial law did not really cleanse people, but it was provisional until Christ would come to purify sinners through His blood 
shed on the cross in the place of sinners. We don't clean ourselves up, but He lovingly washes His bride and makes her beautiful. Jesus came to buy a bride with that shed blood. And all who believe become a part of that blood-brought bride. Say that five times fast. I'm glad I only said it once. And so, where do you stand in relation to this Jesus? This purifier, this bridegroom. Is he the one that you are entrusting to purify you before God? Is he the one that you delight in because he first delighted in you and welcome as, so to speak, a husband? to provide you with protection and provision and everything else? Have you entered into that kind of relationship with Him or are you still sort of holding Him at bay? Maybe politely, but not warmly and intimately. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a, uh, an amazing picture of Jesus here that when we unpack it we see his great love and his great provision for his people that we can indeed say what a great savior he is for he is able to do what no one else is able to do and so help us to welcome that news Embrace not just that news, but that person. And when we find ourselves uh, having stumbled and muddied by sin, to cry out to Him again, cleanse me from the fountain that flows with blood. Wash away my guilt and sin. Help us to remember that and not be downcast because we have fallen yet again. But help us to remember that Jesus always picks up his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.